0: Hi, I'm Tom Johnson and you're listening to another post from RatherBewriting.com. Today, I am talking about my conflicted thoughts about the decentralized web while taking the Census of Technical Communicators survey. Before we dive into the details of this post, let me just state an overall kind of abstract of what I'll talk about. Basically, uh, recently, I was taking the Census of Technical Communicators survey, um, and a few of the questions asked about professional development, and I saw that, you know, blogs, including mine, were listed as one of the potential sources people could select. And this caused me to think a lot about like the value of blogs as a learning resource. Um, you know overall advertising encourages bloggers to create more rapid fire lightweight content in order to increase page views and other attention on uh, on the site and the proliferation proliferation of this blog content really turns the wheels of social media because each each blog creates a kind of micro burst of attention for a company or website um, so the this is fine except for there's a consequence. That consequence is that more traditional articles are scholarly journal articles, more traditional sources such as books, chapters of other learning modules might take a hit. But really, the web's architecture and monetization models all kind of built around or it's optimized for blog content. So unless these other mediums can find a way to kind of plug into that optimization, they'll just sort of slide into invisibility. All right, that's the high-level overview. Now let's start at the beginning here. So researchers at the uh, Concordia University, at Concordia University, including Saul Carliner, a rock star academic, um, they're conducting a, quote, census of technical communicators. This survey takes about 20 minutes to complete, but it's definitely worth your time and I'm really fascinated to see what the results will be. And you can find a link to this survey in this blog post. Now some of these survey questions will probably prompt some serious reflection. For example, here's a couple, Um, quote, as a technical writer, where do you feel the most pain or friction? And here's another, how do technical writers in your organization feel the most pain or friction? Now, there's also, during this survey, you'll find an entire section about resources that you consult for professional development. And in this list of resources, uh, my blog's included, as well as the Content Wrangler, Scriptorium, and Gentles Just Right Click. Uh, And seeing my blog here is what prompted a lot of thoughts about the decentralized web. Because in a way, you know, seeing blogs listed here, um, sort of, in some way, one might think it celebrates the decentralization of the web. Um, Being listed right next to peer-reviewed journals, formal conferences, trade magazines, these other more typical and kind of um, time-tested professional development resources, uh, to also have blogs there, suggests that, and, and not just blogs, but like specific people attached to blogs, suggests that, that the dynamics of the web have really destabilized the hierarchy of information in, 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 in interesting ways. Um, now, there was recently a whole web summit called Decentralized Web Summit that just ended like last week. Um, they have recordings that are available. I didn't attend this, but... Uh, I'm planning to check out some more of the videos. But it sort of made me think about decentralization. Um, Computing Magazine, or Computing whatever, uh, they summarized some of the takeaways from a couple of keynote speakers from Mozilla and the Internet Archive. I'm going to read a quote here. Computing says, quote, The ideology of the web's early pioneers, according to Baker, was free software and open source. Money was considered evil, she said, so when companies came in to commercialize the Internet, the original architects were unprepared. Advertising is the Internet's original sin, Kali told the packed room. Advertising is winner-take-all, and that's how we've ended up with centralization and monopolies. She continues, or the author continues, At the conference, attendees presented utopian visions of how the future of the Internet could look. Civil, a new media startup, proposed crowd-supported journalism using cryptocurrency micropayments. Mastodon, a decentralized and encrypted social network, was commonly referenced as an alternative to Twitter. As Facebook and Google continue to monopolize the digital advertising ecosystem... Recent estimates say that the two companies control over 70% of digital advertising spending globally. The promise of a decentralized web free from the shackles of advertising demands is fun to imagine." End quote. In other words, the web was founded on free software and open source, but advertising ruined the purity of these ideals. Now, while web enthusiasts traditionally celebrate decentralization, um, the recent political scene has caused many people to question the value of decentralization, given that external entities, for example, Russia, can destabilize our sense of real news by injecting fake, polarizing news stories uh, that are circulated through social media channels, for example, Facebook, Facebook, because of this, you know, many have called out and, and, and raised questions about whether decentralization on the web is good, right? In contrast, if the web were centralized, presumably these fake stories would just be filtered out by judicious editors. So given this context, right, this political context where we're questioning the value of decentralization... It made me wonder whether having my blog appear in this list of professional development resources might actually have some downsides. You know, maybe the editors of some of these techcom peer reviewed journals look at my site and shake their heads, thinking, Ah, there goes that crazy blogger again, cranking out more new posts that have people spinning around like wild chickens or something. Now, I would never post intentionally uh, I would never intentionally post any kind of fake news on my blog for sure. But there are undeniable characteristics that are inherent in blogging that just make the practice somewhat questionable and susceptible to uh, some of these these evils of advertising. For starters, on a blog, you have to crank out a lot of content. And I mean a lot on a regular basis. For example, uh, there's a professional blogger who's explaining how she makes a living blogging. She says that in order to earn fifty-one hundred dollars a month, five thousand one hundred dollars a month, she has to write fifty-eight posts. That's about two posts per day. And now she doesn't just crank them out all on her own site. She posts for various you know companies as well. So you you. you Obviously, you do post on your site, but you maybe have three or four big companies. You post on their sites and so forth. You string this together, and you're really cranking out a lot of content. And the rapid production of this content feeds the social media machine because each time you post a blog, it creates, creates, quote, a little burst of attention that entices readers to go visit that site. And each page visit contributes to eyeballs on whatever is being advertised on that site. More more hits on a site allows that, that site to command greater advertising revenue. And this is why at the Decentralized Web Summit, the speaker would say that, quote, advertising is the Internet's original sin. It's not just that there are ads on sites. The problem is that many sites naturally gravitate towards activities that maximize or optimize views on the page, primarily because of advertising. And yeah, while sure long content like 2000 words or so does have readership and Google does try to favor long information rich content with SEO, honestly short little posts do the trick much more efficiently sometimes. Uh, especially if you link bait the titles with these short posts you can entice people you know who're standing in line at the grocery store or taking a 2 minute break at work maybe they're hiding out in a bathroom you can they've got a couple minutes with that short post you can entice them to go visit your site read a short little article for a hit of information and that lightweight post fulfills its purpose of bringing more visits to your site now from an author's point of view a blogger's point of view you can spend a week writing one five thousand word article and maybe get 500 views or you can spend a week writing five 500 word articles and probably get three times as many views which activity better optimizes for page views Shorter, lighter weight content simply performs better for the purposes of advertising. And by short, I mean anything that would basically qualify as a blog post rather than a longer journal article or chapter or book. Now this barrage of short, superficial content ultimately distracts readers from immersion in more information rich substantial news sources. Or just sources, not necessarily news sources. So while on the one hand, I you know celebrate seeing my name in this census of technical Communicators survey, you know I'm like so excited to see me, my name. It's also sort of a sign, sadly, of intellectual decline. In which case, I'm sorry. Uh, actually, you know although most people you know think of me as a blogger. I don't consider myself in the same category as a professional blogger. I mean I only blog as a side hobby outside of my day job as a technical writer. I mean I, I do have advertising on my site and it does bring in revenue, but it's not strictly based on like the number of page views and it certainly doesn't keep me financially afloat. Um, I don't I don't sit here thinking, Oh, how can I make this post uh, and its title SEO rich uh, by targeting popular phrases and keywords and so forth. You know, I'm, my goal is not rapid fire content generation. In general, I write about issues that matter or that are that are important to me. And if readers also find alignment, great. You know, they can they can uh, read the site. Now, in some ways, um, coming back to some of these ideas of the internet's uh, kind of origin story being based on open source and free, um, romanticizing an an advertising-free web, I think is naive. To think that we would get this endless body of rich information on the web, millions of highly accurate, engaging pages, you know, thousands of free open source services and other tools, you know, all for free without any kind of advertising suggests that there are just content creators and developers who are just itching to start contributing information and services in non-stop ways with no thought of return. You know, if if we did not have advertising, then first of all the web would be a lot smaller. And also content creators and developers would charge subscription fees for their content or services. Now, sites like Medium have shown some successful models, at least initially, with subscription fees. Um, But the reality is that if you want your content to be discoverable, it just needs to be indexed by Google because this is where two-thirds of traffic originates. And it also needs to be free to access. The price of free access and free content is advertising. Eric Holscher, who I consider to be a champion enthusiast of the open source movement, he had to actually introduce ads to support the Read the Docs business model. Now, I think Eric cringes every time a sponsor at like, the Write the Docs conference gets a highly visible slide or speaker time. Um, and with ad- ads, his compromise is to make sure the ads are ethical. In an article called Ethical Ads, he explains, quote, Read the Docs is a large free web service. There is one proven business model to support this kind of site, advertising. We are building the advertising model we want to exist, and we're calling it ethical ads. Ethical ads respect users while providing value to advertisers. We don't track you, sell your data, or anything else. We simply show ads to users based on the content of the pages you look at. We also give 10% of our ad space to community projects as as our way of saying thanks to the open source community." Basically, without advertising, we wouldn't have Read the Docs because no one can sustain this kind of service for thousands of projects for free. For that matter, without advertising, TV would probably not exist in the same form either. So, advertising is the necessary evil required to power free information and services on the web. But what price are we paying for this advertising? How is advertising corrupting us like the original sin it is? Well, here's, how, here's the story. Advertising creates a distortion in the very forms of information that we consume. It, it causes information to be more lightweight, to be link baited, or to have link bait titles, and to be generated at such a rapid and constant rate that it warps our attention span and causes us to constantly seek out what's new. Our ability for deep immersion and flow has been crippled, and it hurts our creativity and intellectual engagement, at least this is the general you know, criticism. Now I know that to some extent I'm contributing to this degeneration of information. Even with my lengthy, long-winded posts that are sometimes as much as 5,000 words or more, where I try to question assumptions and think critically, I also fall prey to more lightweight, unchecked content. I'm under pressure Self-imagined uh, to produce more content to keep the page views on my blog high to stay a relevant hub for tech comm information. You know, in order to do this, I have to produce, produce, produce for my site to stay visible and relevant. If you if you stop publishing for three months, you basically are forgotten. Uh, even beyond the incentives of advertising. There's also a kind of high that comes from social interactions. The interactive nature of blogging—when you see your posts get retweeted and favorited and commented and discussed—you know it makes you think that hey, this content matters. You know, I'm making some contribution. Even now, writing this post, you know, delivering it here, I know that I'm diving into a contentious topic. It's going to hit a nerve with some people. It might spark debate. And I I can already sort of anticipate these discussions coming. This feedback, even before it materializes, feeds the drive to blog even more. In this way, advertising kind of encourages this model of short-form, lightweight content, since it increases the number and frequency of these interaction highs. Now, I've been thinking about the web and the forms of content that are optimized for the web, um, especially in the context of this academic practitioner's conversation project, which I've talked about in the past. You know, deep down, I think academics and the traditional publishing world for academics where journals and other, other resources are uh, behind paywalls, that only academics can access, um, where content is distributed as PDF files, which aren't very searchable. Where the review and publishing process takes between six to twelve months. Where researchers have to have to just get university approval through this very lengthy and tedious process that can involve months before they can even conduct this, the easiest research that involves any kind of human. Subjects. Um, This sort of model, I don't think, is going to survive in the current web. You know, very few people will discover, read, or share this content. At least, not enough to turn revenue through the advertising machine, or even to to achieve goals of online presence. Which, you know, if you think, oh, I don't need an online presence, uh, you do. If you're uh, an academic program. As such, I think this content. Uh, is going to be perceived as invisible and irrelevant to everybody who's not a member of that community that has access inside those walls and who also knows how to navigate these back roads of these academic systems to actually find uh, this content. I, I just think it's unfortunate that the academics who produce information, information-rich, in-depth content, well-researched, thought carefully thought out um, just pieces of information it's unfortunate that they're trapped in a web invisible system by the structure of of their institution you know their the very institution traps them in this invisibility because their career stability is all based on achieving tenure and tenure is only granted to those academics who publish fever feverishly, in this web invisible space in the peer-reviewed journals thick with discourse that as uh, Rebecca Anderson pointed out in a recent SIGDOC presentation, practitioners quote brace for pain before reading if they can find the content at all. Now this might be fine for academic journals because the audience as, as some, as some have pointed out mostly consists of other academics who understand and have access to the system. However, tech comm academic programs must sell tech comm preparation for prospective students. I mean, that, that is what they sell. Um, without this, this uh, constant flow of incoming students to prepare, prepare for the workforce, the programs wouldn't be able to get funding. So in order to meet this goal, these programs have to be visible to prospective students. And how can the programs establish credibility and engagement to these prospective students if most of what the program produces is invisible, inaccessible content? The only way out of this isolating discourse into the visibility of the web is for academics to become bloggers. But they will not become bloggers because the very methodology upon which they're their sort of academic souls are forged, requires them to be rigorous and methodical, challenging assumptions and avoiding claims that haven't been carefully researched, analyzed, and backed by peer-reviewed publications. You know, Few will ever crank out multiple posts a week or even per month, and if they do blog, they'll rarely pour their energies into blogging because blogs aren't tied to tenure. And so they're only a distraction to their real work. They're not a space where they truly engage. Even so, a quick sketch pad that accompanies their real research and passions could have the inklings of some visibility. All right, let's wrap this up. Uh, Coming back to the census survey, definitely take this survey. When you arrive at the part of the survey that asks you to identify the sources, you read for professional development think about some of the ideas I've tossed around here. Certainly that this census survey doesn't slant you to think any source is better than any other. in fact, this survey is is probably a model for how surveys should properly be constructed and carried out you know soliciting fair unbiased responses. I'm only commenting on the my my own ideas swimming in my head after I finish the survey and how, I sort of come to terms with seeing my name and blog as a source for professional development. I I don't know if I've corrupted good reading habits. Uh, Surely for some, I've sparked ideas that maybe weren't there before. For others, I might have distracted you from immersion in better sources. Um, But for better or worse, I'll keep blogging because it's the inevitable route to follow on the web. Okay, you've been listening to I'dRatherBeWriting.com. I'm Tom Johnson. Thanks for listening.